Well, our, our view of the Christmas story is through the eyes of the gospel writers as they describe the experiences of Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, and even the innkeeper. But there's another version of the Christmas story in Scripture that reveals what was going on behind the scenes long before the birth ever took place. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the Christmas story from the viewpoint of the cosmic struggle between good and evil by taking a, a quick Old Testament survey. Also typecast there, I guess, as well. But... Um, now, some of the stories that we're going to look at may be unfamiliar to you, but I'm going to ask you to, to hang in because we're going to tie it all together uh, once we get to the end. This is a story that starts at the very beginning of the human race, right after the serpent's deception of Adam and Eve and their fall into sin and death, God promised them an offspring who would destroy that serpent and redeem fallen mankind. So when God sacrificed an animal and used its skin to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame, he was giving them a picture of that redemption. So God provided the only way possible, and that was through an innocent substitutionary sacrifice. See, there was no other way to do it. It wouldn't be works. It wouldn't be religion. Only God himself could destroy that serpent and overcome sin and death. Well, we now know, looking back, that it was the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that was the way that God planned to destroy that serpent and provide salvation for his people. But when that promise was made in the garden, Satan was right there with Adam and Eve. And as soon as he heard God's plan to provide a redeemer through the offspring of the woman, he began his work to prevent the birth of Christ. I'm sure most of you, or many of you anyway, have seen the Terminator movies. Uh, the first one takes place in 1984 when a seemingly unstoppable assassin is sent back in time from 2029. His mission is to kill Sarah Connor, whose son John will lead the resistance against the machines who are looking to take over the world. So if he can kill Sarah, then John will never be born and there will be no one to stop these machines from destroying all of mankind. So the Terminator will stop at nothing to accomplish his goal of killing the woman. Well, likewise, Satan, if he could stop the promised birth of Eve's offspring, then he could stop God's plan of redemption and prevent his own destruction. So long before the unseen world of angels and the world of Mary and Joseph collided in that little quiet village of Nazareth, there was an intense battle raging throughout the ages. Our Savior, who came to bring peace 
between God and his people was the object of the greatest hatred and the greatest conflict in all creation. Now, this version of the Christmas story isn't found in the Gospels, but it is found in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 12, we are given a panoramic view of the angelic conflict and the supernatural forces of darkness that are always at work in the world and have been since the fall. Satan hates God and will do anything to thwart his purposes. He knew that without the birth of Christ, there would be no cross and no resurrection. He knew that without the Christmas story, there would be no eternal life and no defeat of sin and death. So here in Revelation 12, God gives us a glimpse of Satan's supreme effort to stop the birth of the child who would eventually crush his head. So our purpose today is to understand the extent of the opposition to Jesus' birth, the zeal with which Satan tried to prevent it, and the magnitude of God's commitment to fulfill his promise of a savior. We'll see that the Christmas story is so much more than a baby born in a manger, that it is in fact the greatest victory over the forces of darkness in the history of the universe. Now, why is that even important to us? Well, I believe it's important because it shows us that there's nothing that can stand in the way of God accomplishing his purposes, that his power exceeds any and all opposition. We will see that God is absolutely all-powerful. The Bible calls it omnipotent, and that he is perfectly faithful to every one of his promises. He is powerful and he is able, and therefore he is completely trustworthy. So we, as the recipient of those promises, regardless of our circumstances, we can be the people of God. We can have joy even in the midst of challenging circumstances. We can give generously. We can serve sacrificially. And we can love selflessly because God is all-powerful and trustworthy. So open up your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, the, the verses are going to be on the screen. We're going to look at quite a few verses today, so you can follow along on the screens. If you don't have a Bible at all, go over to the bookstore after church, and we'd be glad to give you one. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore a child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So, lots of symbolism there, but there are three main characters, and I believe that they're relatively easy to identify. In fact, the first one, the dragon, God gives us the exact answer just a few verses down. So just go down to verse 9 in Revelation 12. He says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the dragon is clearly Satan with seven heads and and crowns and demonstrating his great power and authority. All of Satan's activities have basically a twofold purpose. One is his ambition to rule and be worshipped above God. And secondly, a hatred towards God and his people. Now we're also introduced to a, a pregnant woman with the sun over her head, the moon under her feet, and a crown with, uh, with 12 crowns. Well, I believe that that's a picture of the nation of Israel. And here's why. If you go back, and we're going to let Scripture help us interpret Scripture. If you go back to, to the book of Romans, chapter 9, Paul is speaking about the nation of Israel. And in verse 5, he says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So from the nation of Israel comes the birth of this child. Well, there's one other time in Scripture where that same symbolism is used, where the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. And it's in Genesis 37 when, Jacob, uh, when Joseph has his second dream. And in that dream, we see a sun and a moon and 12 stars. And God tells us that the sun is Jacob, the moon, Rachel, and the 12 stars are the sons of Israel. So clearly, those pictures are of Israel. So we have Satan, the dragon, we have Israel as the woman, and then the third character, of course, is the child that is to be born, and that is clearly a reference to the birth of Christ. Because we're told in verse 5, back to Revelation 12, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now that word rule in the Greek is actually... Uh, means to, to shepherd. So you have this picture of a ruler who will rule all the nations, but he'll do it as a shepherd with, with tender and loving care for his sheep. Again, to allow Scripture to help us uh, interpret Scripture, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, speaking of the Messiah who was to come, Zephaniah said this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. So again, you see that same picture of the power of one mighty enough to save, but yet tender enough to, to care for his children. So those three symbols, the dragon is Satan, the woman is Israel, and the child, of course, is Christ. Now, what's interesting, verse 5 also says that he was caught up to God and to his throne. So it doesn't deal at all with his life on earth. And I believe the reason for that is because the rest of Scripture, the rest of the New Testament, describes his purposes and his plans and all that he accomplished while he was on earth, including one very important purpose that we don't often emphasize. 
And we find it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. The writer to the Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And then John, in his first letter, reinforces that purpose. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No wonder the dragon wanted to stop the birth. Through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the works of the devil were to be destroyed, and the gift of life was to be given to all who come to him in repentance and faith. And he did it by coming right into Satan's domain to face the dragon down on his own turf. Revelation 12 shows us that all hell was bent on preventing this birth because it spelled their ultimate defeat. God gives us this great sign so we as his people will never forget the battle that raged to get our Savior to earth. And as I mentioned, this battle began right at the beginning of the human race. In, in that first letter of John's, in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Doesn't that make sense? This offspring of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Well, Abel's the godly guy. Let's get rid of him. So Satan influences Cain to kill his brother, not knowing that God was ready to provide another son, Seth, through whom the line would continue. Well, from then on, there have been countless attacks by Satan revealed in Scripture in his attempt to defeat God's purpose through the offspring of the woman. So not long after Cain and Abel's situation, Genesis 6 records that every intention of man's heart was only evil continuously. Satan had so influenced the human race that there was such evil that he believed that God's only choice would be to destroy the whole human race and therefore prevent the coming of the Messiah. But he didn't realize that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, tells us that God gave grace, favor to Noah, and he protected his family in the ark. After Noah, God, in Genesis 12, reveals that he had chosen a, a man named Abraham from a pagan nation, the Chaldeans, in a city of Ur, to be the man through whom his family would produce this coming offspring, this seed of the woman. And rather than attack Abraham, what he did was he convinced Abraham to lie about his wife and tell this pagan king that Sarah was his sister so Abraham wouldn't be killed. And therefore, Sarah was brought into the harem of this king and... Isaac couldn't be born because now Sarah and Abraham were separated. God protected Sarah, and Abraham did it again. Same thing. And again, God protected Sarah, 
and Isaac, the child of the promise, was born. And Isaac had twin sons, and God revealed that the older would serve the younger, that the younger son, Jacob, was to be the one through whom the Messiah would come. So what did Satan do? He attacks Jacob through his older brother Esau, just like Cain and Abel. But God again protects Jacob, and Jacob runs for his life, spends time with his uncle Laban. When he gets ready to leave his uncle Laban, Laban wants him dead. Laban attacks him, and just before he arrives at Jacob's camp, God shows Laban an army of angels protecting Jacob and says, don't touch my boy Jake. God protects him once again. And then God determines that the fourth of Jacob's 12 sons, Judah, would be the man through whom this line would continue. And Satan gets a hold of Judah's sons, and they are so evil that God has to kill those boys. Satan feels he won. But again, God raises up Tamar, a Canaanite pagan woman, to trick Judah and to the two of them having a child, and Perez is born, who is to be in the line of the Messiah. Then God sends the people of Israel into Egypt and uses Joseph, the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons, to protect the people. But then a king arises, Exodus 1 tells us, a king arises that didn't know Jacob, didn't know Joseph, and didn't remember all the things that Joseph had done for Egypt. And instead of appreciating them, he brings them into slavery. And now when they're in slavery, they begin to multiply to such an extent that the Pharaoh is, is afraid that the Israelites will overwhelm the Egyptians. So what does he do? He decides to have all of the male children murdered. He grabs the, the midwives and he says to them, as soon as the male child is born, you kill them right on the spot. Every single male child born, I want dead. But the midwives won't do it. So he says, okay, then we'll drown them. I want every male child born to Israel drowned in the Nile. Again, God comes and protects Moses so that he'll have a leader to bring the people out of Israel into the promised land and to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. It went on and on. Satan used all of the surrounding nations around Canaan to destroy the Israelites, but God continually raised up judges, even though, even though the Israelites were doing what was right in their own eyes. God produced people like Gideon and Deborah and Samson and protected them over and over again. Then the dragon tried to use Saul to kill David through whom the line would continue. David, his best general. David, his most faithful supporter. But the Bible says an evil spirit came upon Saul and he tried to kill him. But again, God protected David. Then in the book of Esther, Satan used Haman, an evil leader, to influence the king to send out a decree to have every Israelite murdered, everyone throughout the entire world. And it came this close to succeeding, but God used Esther and Mordecai to save God's people, preserve the line, and even have Haman hung on his own gallows. 
There's a very interesting story in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, beginning in verse 10. It says, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death. And she put him in his nurse in a bedroom. Thus Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram and wife of Jehoiada the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not put him to death. And he remained with them in six years, hidden in the house of God, while Athaliah reigned over the land. One child left, Joash. One child. And God protected him in a bedroom for six years. One child away from the line ending. Again, God intervened and protected that chosen family. And then there's, there's a story in, in the book of Isaiah. King Ahaz was in power at this time. Ahaz was an incredibly evil king, even though he was the son of Uzziah, who was one of Israel's best kings, Judah's best kings, rather. Um, Ahaz had reinstituted the worship of Molech, an absolutely detestable pagan god who required the sacrifice of children. Ahaz even sacrificed one of his own children to this, this pagan god. He was so evil, so corrupt, so despicable, that even the pagan nations around Israel couldn't stand him, and Ahaz got word that they were going to attack him. Well, rather than trust God to protect him, Ahaz decided to make an alliance with the Assyrian king. In fact, he went and robbed the temple, took the gold and silver from God's house, and gave it to the Assyrian king in order to buy his protection. It was at that point that God said to Isaiah, you better go have a talk with Ahaz. So Isaiah goes and says to Ahaz, what are you doing? God's going to protect you. You don't need this Assyrian king. Ahaz says, no, thank you. I'll put my money on him. And it's at that point that Isaiah says something to Ahaz that that seems so out of context to the situation, unless you look at it in the light of the story that we've been talking about today. He says to him in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that have to do? with this impending attack. Well, here's what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz. God has shown throughout all of history that no one will be allowed to completely destroy the people of God. No one will be allowed to destroy David's royal line. And here's what's going to happen. The virgin will be with child and will bear a son. And they'll call his name Emmanuel. That promise made to Adam and Eve so long ago is going to go off exactly as God planned. And it will happen through the nation of Israel. Even if these armies come against you, you will be protected because the virgin-born Son of God is Emmanuel and he will come through the nation of Israel and through your line. 
what Isaiah is saying to this evil king, Ahaz, no matter what you do, no matter what these other nations do, God's promise not to forsake his people or his purposes will stand. God not only won't abandon you, someday he's going to come and live with his people. So just trust him now. He won't forsake you. And here's the best part. This child that's to come, it's Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. It means God became a man. It means the creator king of the universe took on flesh. The child of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. That child that was to be born would be fully human, but also fully God. See, in the Old Testament, the presence of God with his people was first in the tabernacle. Then it was in the temple. And now he's saying, he is going to be with you in a person, in Jesus. So you can trust him, Ahaz. God will be absolutely certain that no matter what or who comes against you, that Messiah will come. Yet throughout the entire rest of the Old Testament, Satan kept at it. He kept attacking over and over again, trying to defeat Israel. He used the Amalekites. He used the Edomites. He used the Jebusites and pretty much all of the other ites. But never to any success. He used Balak and Balaam. Satan's desire was to kill the woman before she could have the child. And he tried over and over again but he could never succeed. The child was born. Christmas happened just as God said it would. So then he tried to kill the child. Terminator 2. <laughs> right? Second Terminator came. He went after John. That's exactly what happened here. So who did Satan first use? Herod. Herod makes an incredible decree to have all of the male children born at the time of Christ murdered. But Matthew 2 tells us that an angel came to Joseph and said, go to Egypt. God protected him. And then when Jesus started his public ministry, he was taken into the desert and he was tempted by Satan. And the second temptation, Satan tried to get him to throw himself off the temple so that he would be destroyed. We read in Luke 4, that Jesus goes back to his hometown, to his people that knew him and loved him. And he brings a message of God's kingdom, of God's love, of God's presence. Repent and return. And what do the people do? Try to kill him. But again, he slips away. God protects him. Satan did everything he possibly could to devour the child. But he couldn't do it. God wouldn't allow it. Satan couldn't stop him from being born. Neither could he stop him from accomplishing redemption and purchasing salvation for God's people. And that means he wouldn't eventually be able to stop him from crushing his own head. 
No matter what Satan and his angels have done or are doing, nothing on earth or in heaven can stop the redemptive plan of God that was first revealed in the garden. But that defeated foe, he's relentless. So if he can't devour the woman, if he can't devour the child, 1 Peter 5.8 says that he roams about the earth seeking whom he may devour. That's us. That's his target. But he doesn't want to kill us. He just wants to distract us. Especially at this time of the year. Distract us from the real meaning of Christmas. He wants us to keep Christ out as the central thing of Christmas. He wants to cast doubt in our hearts about the goodness and faithfulness of God in fulfilling His promises and try to convince us that we'll find joy in things rather than in God Himself. Or maybe He'll get our expectations to exceed reality, to set us up for disappointment when the season isn't quite as fulfilling as we hoped it would be. And he'll use the world to marginalize Christmas. He'll water it down so that we'll forget the real meaning and purpose. He's a relentless, powerful foe. Remember the seven heads and seven crowns. But God is more powerful. And we today have access to the same power that was available to protect the offspring all throughout history. And that power today resides in us as God's people. The Holy Spirit of God himself lives within us. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And if you, if you think that that power was only for the Old Testament, only for that time, well, again, here's what Scripture says. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13, I'm sorry, James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So no matter what our circumstances, no matter what the season, God never changes. His promises never change. His purposes never change. His power never changes. The power to protect the ancestral line of Jesus throughout the entire history of mankind is the same power that God has today to provide for and protect His people. What God has done... Amen. What God has done in sending His Son into our world... All that went into preserving the promised offspring, the seed of the woman, is an absolute guarantee that he can and will do everything he promised to do. Jesus' birth against the fierce opposition is absolute proof that God fulfills all of his promises. 
That means when he says he will never leave us and never forsake us, it's true. That means when he says that he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, it is true. That means that when he says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, it is true. And when he says that he's coming back to take us to be with him where he is, it is true. All the promises in this book are true. God is perfectly able to carry out all that he says. Now maybe, maybe like, like Ahaz, you've had your eyes on your circumstances and not on him and those promises. I hope that now that you've been reminded about the battle that's waged in the heavenly realm and that has raged throughout the ages so that God himself could provide for our deepest need despite our unworthiness. I hope that we'll be so overwhelmed by God's love for us, by God's power, and by God's faithfulness that we really will trust him who is perfectly trustworthy and that we really can have that joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. We really can have that peace that passes all understanding. We really can be generous givers and and faithful servers. We can step out in faith and believe God and love selflessly even those who are unlovely. Because God has shown himself faithful throughout all of history. That same power, that same power is available to us because he is God with us. He is Emmanuel. By the power of his spirit, he is in us and with us. He is not distant. He is not uninvolved in our lives. He is here. He's with us. He loves us. And Christmas, Christmas means we've already received the greatest gift possible. God with us. So if nothing else ever happens other than the fact that he provided us with a savior, that he changed our destiny from death to life, we still should be grateful, thankful, worshipful people. Now maybe you're here today and by your own admission you would say that you're not a Christian. I would maintain that there's only one thing for you to do if you want to experience real joy, real peace, real relationship, and that is to receive God's gift of Jesus Christ. Receive the gift of reconciliation to God. See, the Bible declares that we are all rebels and we are alienated from God because of our sin. But God, He purchased our salvation. God purchased new life for us. He paid for our reconciliation 
back to him through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can't pay enough possibly to reconcile ourselves back to God. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. We just receive it. We receive the gift of reconciliation to God when we recognize that this world doesn't have all it's cracked up to be and we turn from that and in faith turn to him believing he is who he says he is. The amazing thing about this gift is that it's relational. We get what we most need and that is a relationship with the creator king of the universe. We get God. He offers us himself. What we receive is someone who can forgive our sins. Someone who can ransom us from guilt and death and give us new life with the power to love and have victory. Satan and the world system claims that God is not what we need. It's technology and knowledge and things. But if we really want to experience joy, if we really want to understand what this life is about, what we need is Christ because he is perfectly sufficient. Let's pray. Father, thank you for incredible power that you have displayed throughout all of history to demonstrate your commitment to the promise to provide a Savior. Lord, we as the recipients of that great gift, give you thanks and praise and worship. And I pray that each of us would respond with generous hearts, with selfless lives, with sacrificial service, so that you would be honored in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.